Hello, and welcome back to Black Thoughts, a project by Podcasting as Praxis. I'm James, and last time we got a little bit heavy with it. We talked about things which are kind of hard to wrap your head around, deep things about language and politics. So for this time, I thought I would take it a bit easier. I'd talk about something that's a little less explicitly political and a little bit more personal. But as we know, the personal is political. And the subject I've chosen for today is, in many ways, no less challenging. We'll see what you make of it. You wouldn't know it to look at me, but I'm pushing 40. I am 37. I'm starting to get little white hairs creeping into my beard. My hairline is very slightly beginning to recede around my temples. And generally, the lines are appearing on my face. It's all downhill from here. As I get closer to 40, I'm of course doing that midlife thing. I'm starting to think about, well, where have I been and where am I going? I am, according to modern, you know, social consensus, I'm coming up on halfway through, right? Might actually have much less time than that, we never know. But at least now, at least at this point in life, at least by cultural consensus, I'm supposed to be looking back and thinking, and I can't help it, I am. I am. And it's something that's giving me a different appreciation on life. In particular, it's changing how I engage with certain media. And it's got me thinking really hard about the past and about where I've been, what I could have done with it, and what I've got to do with the memories of it now. So this time, I'd like to talk to you about the past you can't go back to. I'd like to talk to you about regrets and fond memories. I'd like to talk to you about nostalgia. As those of you who listen to the podcast regularly will know, I am a massive nerd, a huge geek, a terrific dork, and I play a lot of video games, as I have done on the streams we occasionally do. As part of my general nerdery and geeky interests, I tend to play video games which are not difficult exactly, but certainly challenging. Video games that take time, video games that I have to beat my head against. And the series which I enjoy the most is Dark Souls, um, and the general Soulsborne games um, from From Software. If you've never heard of them, don't worry, it doesn't matter. I'm just giving a little context as to how I came into this topic. Because back in, I believe, it would have been 2016, Dark Souls 3 was released. And I ended up playing through it, and I had a, a very interesting experience. Because there was one little part of it which grabbed me by the lapels and made me sit up and really pay attention to what was going on beneath the surface. By way of background, let me kind of feed you into the uh, the general plot, clue you into the general plot of Dark Souls. It posits a world in which there are powerful, if you will, souls that convey power, hence the title. Um, and in this world, the gods are those that seized the mightiest souls and thus became the most powerful. And humanity received the weakest soul, the, the faintest soul, the titular Dark Soul. The game itself is set towards the end of the era of the gods in a kind of unnaturally prolonged, undying, eternally recurring cycle. The world is dying and going to hell, 
and the gods are clinging on to power, and it's up to you what you're going to do in this, what seems to be a doomed era, a doomed age, and possibly a doomed world. In the context of the game, then, everything to do with humanity is considered dark. Real, true humanity, the true face of humanity, away from the world of the gods, is disquieting, dark, ugly, difficult. And studies of what's called dark sorceries, etc., are considered to be taboo. Now, this is all typical fantasy drama, etc., right? So why on earth am I talking to you about this on an episode about nostalgia? Well, there's a part in Dark Souls 3 where there's one, you know, little character you run into who you rescue from a prison cell. She is a witch, a heretic. And when you rescue her, she tells you this straight up. She says, you know, I'm guilty, I'm a heretic, is this something you could forgive? And then after you, you know, take her back to the gathering place where, you know, you have your little base, if you will, um, she tells you that the only thing she has to offer you is her dark sorceries. She can teach you this forbidden art. She can teach you about the dark truth of humanity. Okay, so far so, you know, humho dramatic. But then there's this line of dialogue. And we'll play it for you now. There is one thing that you should know. There is a darkness within man, and I am afraid you will peer into it. Whether the fear will spark self-reflection or a ruinous nostalgia is up to you entirely. Fear not. Your choice will bring you no scorn. That line about ruinous nostalgia really stuck with me. It got under my skin. It made me sit up and say, well, that's a little bit dramatic, possibly a little bit deep, a ruinous nostalgia. And the reason it stuck out to me is because we never really hear about nostalgia in that light, do we? Nostalgia is something very different. Nostalgia in the society we live in is something that's kind of positive. Even though it's never explicitly described as positive, we're wrapped in a kind of heady nostalgia these days. You see it in the endless remakes, in the TV series that are set in the past in the uh, Schniff hauntology, if I can use the term. Uh, hauntology means it's, it's the study of all our dead futures, this idea that, you know, we had these dreams of futures where we would have flying cars and jetpacks, and none of them have come to pass, and we're haunted by these futures that never came to be. These ideas of hope which have failed and died away, that's what hauntology is, right? So this, this kind of grabbed me because it's like ruinous nostalgia. That's interesting. That's interesting. And it, it kind of sat with me and turned over in me and it kind of consumed me a little bit, I'm not going to lie. Because the first time I'd been exposed to nostalgia as a thing that I sat and thought about was much earlier. It was back in 2007, October 2007. And I know it was October 2007 because it was during a TV show. If you have ever watched the television series Mad Men, you'll know that it's a sprawling drama, an epic, if you will, about an advertising agency or agencies set in the heyday of the American kind of 60s, you know? Um, it's a, a TV show that definitely, I think, outgrew its original premise, and it is, I think it's genuinely good for all its flaws. The titular character is a guy named Don Draper. Uh, well... I say his name is Don Draper, actually that's a stolen identity. And he is an advertising man, 
and a family man, but also he's a liar, a consummate liar, even to himself. And the first season really establishes his character and his dysfunction, and it's very, very good. Um, I, I highly recommend it. One of the most interesting parts of it comes in the very last episode of the first series, uh, first season, excuse me, I should say, where he's been given a, a, a task, if you will, a pitch he's to make to do the advertising for a new product from Kodak. Um, or was it Canon? One of the two. Basically, they have produced a revolving wheel slide projector. Now, you might not, depending on your age, you might not know what you know, the original slides were, but before there were photographs, there were slides, and you'd project them onto a surface through a lamp lantern. And the original lamp lanterns were, they were clumsy, you had to manually change the slide, if you will, and it interrupted things. So they came up with, essentially, a wheel. You would load your slides into the wheel ahead of time, it would project light through them, there you'd have your family pictures, you know, displayed on the wall or the projector screen, whatever you like. So his job, Don Draper's job, was to advertise this. And before he could advertise it, he had to pitch the owners on how they would advertise it. And so this leads to the crescendo of the first season, where Don Draper uses his own family snaps to pitch them on how they should be marketing this product. When they came in, originally, when they first, you know, pitched it, they said, well, it's, it's new, it's futuristic, it's like a space rocket, and we're thinking we want to advertise it kind of like that. But then eventually, Don, before the meeting where he has to pitch them, happens on another way to sell it. So for purposes of comment and criticism, I'm going to give you the dialogue from that scene. Listen carefully. So have you figured out a way to work the wheel into it? We know it's hard because wheels aren't really seen as exciting technology, even though they are the original. Well, technology is a glittering lure, but uh, there's the rare occasion when the public can be engaged on a level beyond flash if they have a sentimental bond with the product. My first job, I was in-house at a fur company with this old pro copywriter, Greek, named Teddy. And Teddy told me the most important idea in advertising is new. Creates an itch. You simply put your product in there as a kind of calamine lotion. But he also talked about a deeper bond with the product. Nostalgia. It's delicate, but potent. Sweetheart. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. backwards and forwards it takes us to a place where we ache to go again
not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. It let's us travel the way a child travels. Around and around, and back home again. To a place where we know we are loved. So as you can probably hear from that clip, there's a lot of focus on the family pictures that Don Draper's showing, and what's not obvious uh, from my description of it is Don's going through marital problems at the time he's doing this, and in that scene, he actually sells himself on how happy he used to be with his family before he started his infidelities. And so right after the scene, he hurries home to see his family, only to find they've already left. That the reality is, it's, it's broken, there is no warmth and joy. And the, the programme really drives this home by first doing an imaginary scene, where he comes home and he's warmly greeted and actually they reconcile. But then the final scene of the episode is, he gets home and they've already left. They've gone for Christmas with the in-laws. And it's not, you know, they've not left him, left him, but it's cold and the reality is that he can't go back to the past, right? The advertiser pitches himself on this version of the past which is so potent and powerful it overwhelms and changes the present. And this is why, genuinely, it's one of the best scenes and seasons of television that's ever been recorded. But this was when I first, you know, this was when I first started thinking about nostalgia, because I was 22 at the time. Um, and honestly, when you're young, you don't have to think about the past that much. You think about your childhood, sure, but that's a time of growth, that's a time when you're all rough edges and awkward elbows and, you know, still trying to straighten yourself out. It's only when you get into your kind of mid-years you start to look on your past as an adult, the decisions you've made rather than the decisions that were forced on you. And you start to really think about, well, what does my life mean? Where is it going? And so at 22, this is the first time I'm actually going, oh yeah, nostalgia, huh? What am I nostalgic for? And I'll be honest, the deeper meanings of that scene were kind of lost on me. It was Pearls Before Swine. I knew it was good. I knew it had emotionally touched me. But I couldn't work out quite what it meant, what it signified, what it implied. Metaphorically, it's a very interesting premise because what it does as the crescendo of the first season is it shows you how advertising uses nostalgia to lure people into purchasing products, to engaging with and accepting a kind of capitalist lifestyle, right? This is where the political part of the personal starts to come in. Nostalgia, not as a chamomile uh, to the itch of the new, but nostalgia as a warm bath you can slip back into at any time where you can travel back to a place where you're safe. And why do you feel safe in the past? Well, you know how it plays out because you've lived it, right? Imagine, if you will, that you knew you knew exactly how the next five years or so would go. And you knew that they'd broadly be all right. I mean, I'd, I'd love that feeling right now, especially when you look at the world today and the many challenges and problems and just threats we're facing. Imagine how easy it would be if you knew that, okay, there might be a little heartache here and there, there might be some personal travails, but broadly, this is how shit's going to go and it's going to be okay. Wonderful, wouldn't it? It'd be absolutely wonderful. 
you wouldn't have any anxiety that things are going to go boom, that you're going to be hungry, that you're going to be destitute, so on and so forth. And so to people who've had broadly positive experiences in their past, the past is alluring because they know how a story goes and they'd give anything to go back and relive it because they wouldn't be living under the anxiety of the future, under the terror of the choice of the present moment. This is the lure, if you will, of nostalgia. This is the ruinous nostalgia that lies at the heart of a lot of our lives and a lot of our culture. How this nostalgia plays out politically, I'm going to talk about, but in order to kind of do so, I'm going to use a metaphor. And I'm going to talk about British popular culture, and by extension political culture, through the lens of two films. I think it's time that we chose life. I think it's time we went train spotting. The novel Train Spotting was the first novel by Scottish writer Irvine Welsh, um, or Irvin Welsh, depending on just how Scottish you are. It was published in 1993, and it's about essentially heroin junkies in Edinburgh in the 90s, right? I say 90s, actually, it's kind of a blend of like late 1980s into the 1990s. But, it, it, you know, it's, it's got the mark of that kind of era, of that particular time about it. Um, it was instantly a, a huge success. Uh, p critics were very impressed by the style of writing. It, it didn't use formal English, it used the Scottish patois of the time and the place to directly tell the story, which made it quite inaccessible. And it was often imitated by other writers, including the late, great Ian Banks, another Scottish writer. But we're not really talking about the novel, because where Trainspotting became truly transcendental was when it got a film adaptation by Danny Boyle just three years later. That's how good this novel was. It was published in 1993, and it lit such a fire that Danny Boyle turned it into a film in 1996. And it's considered consistently one of the best films ever made, certainly one of the best British films ever, ever made. I'll be honest, it might be slightly overrated, but it is a damn good film. Um... What is particularly good about Train Spotting is it's a snapshot of a, a social and kind of cultural moment in British politics, right? And yet, politics isn't really at the forefront. Politics is just the background to the film. You have the protagonist, uh, Renton, otherwise known by his nickname Rent Boy, um, essentially as a junkie grappling with his addiction but also with his dissatisfaction with life and uh, him and his mate, they'll they'll make jokes about this well-meaning 1980s advertising campaign about, you know, don't do drugs, which was called Choose Life. And thus comes the kind of, you know, opening spiel um, that gets used where they say, choose life, choose, and then a series of increasingly, like, nasty, bitter parts about the time and life they were living in, you know, choose big screen tellies, choose a mortgage, choose getting up on Sunday mornings to take the kids to the park, choose Sunday evenings staring into the mirror wondering who the hell you are, right? You know, so it's, it's kind of cynical, it's bitter. And it's, it's, if you will, an angry rejection of that life and a justification as to why they're all on heroin, right? Um, don't do heroin, just to get really get into this, right? Um, so 
as we kind of watch train spotting and as the film kind of follows its course, they're terrible people. It's it's gross, it's funny, it's horrible. And the general plot is that they stumble into a deal for heroin, um, like in mass quantities, and then they sell it and they get sixteen thousand pounds out of it, which is meant to be split four ways. Spoilers, but it's an old film. At the crescendo, Rent Boy, Renton, steals for sixteen grand. And he walks off with it. And he leaves a quarter of it for one of the four of them, who, by his own words, never hurt anyone. And then he vanishes off and he goes all the way over to uh, Amsterdam. And the film basically finishes with him smiling as he walks off, saying that, I'm going to choose life, essentially. Renton runs away from the life of addiction that he was in. But during the course of the film, he does have like an aborted attempt to go clean, to become you know, a, a regular proper member of society after, you know, after things go really poorly and one of his best mates who he introduces to heroin ends up dying. Essentially, he decides he's got to get away from Edinburgh, this old, terrible city, and he moves to London and becomes an estate agent in London in the 90s. And one of the reasons I think the film did so well, and here's where our you know fellow podcast member David will prick his ears up, is there's a famous scene in Train Spotting where they go up to Arthur's seat near Edinburgh, and you know one of them wants to go on a walk up it. The guy who ends up getting hooked on heroin and dying, um, he's just lost his girlfriend, so he takes the heroin junkies up to Arthur's seat and he's going for a walk, and they're not up for it, so they stop while he's walking on ahead. And then, you know, he's like, oh, but it's for great outdoors. Don't you want to come on? Breathe that air. It doesn't make you, you know, glad to be Scottish. And then Renton comes in with a very famous, uh, you know, dialogue, or I should say soliloquy. Um, it's shite being Scottish. We're the lowest of the low. And a big angry rant about how being Scottish sucks. The politics, the background to the film is, you know, the background of Scotland being a, a, a fucked, servile, backward kind of nation. And it contrasts it with London, where everything's happening where even the Scottish junkie can go to get clean. I honestly think that political subtext of the 90s is part of why that film did so well among all the London commentators. There was a bit of kind of safari kind of tourist laughing, not sympathising with, but really genuinely kind of ogling the Scottish heroin addict and taking some satisfaction in, well, of course, London's the vibrant hit place to be. But there's, you know, there's a cynical undertone threaded through the film about that London, about how, you know, Renton comes down and he comes the closest to happiest he's ever been by participating in that very rat race that he's so cynical about. And so in this way, train spotting is like this cultural touchstone. And what it became in popular culture was this thing that people who grew up in the 90s, who were, you know, come came of age in the late 90s, it became this kind of um, sleek embodiment, this ambassador of, like, cool Britannia. You know, you, you've heard this before. This idea that Britain could produce these great cultural products, etc. Which is really deeply ironic, given that the film itself is a film about existential despair. At heart. So, a lot of politics going on in that film. But what's really important is it was very popular. Very, very, very popular. And, as a consequence, it stayed politically and, and culturally relevant for many years thereafter. So you listen to me talking about this film, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't see it as a kid. I was still a child in 1996, like a real young child. Um, and it wasn't until later in life that I got to sit down and, and watch it. And I thought, yeah, that's a pretty good yarn. That's a good story. That's nice. 
And when I'm talking about it now, if I come off as sounding like I'm nostalgic about it, I'm not really. It doesn't actually have that heart and soul for me, right? It's not it's not my time, it's not my story, it's not the touchstone of my like youth and adulthood, you know? But I find it very interesting because I'm at a remove from it. When the sequel was released many years later, it gave me a very different perspective because Danny Boyle came back to train spotting. There was a there was a sequel to the novel, right? But Danny Boyle ignored that and he decided he wanted to do something entirely his own, based solely on the original film, right? And so, you know, about um, 21 years later, in 2017, Danny Boyle got back with the original crew, including Ewan McGregor, and they filmed T2, Train Spotting, right? And it's a very interesting film. It's a very interesting film. Precisely because... It's a film about the feelings toward the original film. It's actually, when you drill down into it, a film about nostalgia. It's an examination of nostalgia. And it's very, very good. It's very, very good. Uh, when I first saw sections of it, um, I thought, oh, this looks interesting. But the reason I never saw it in the cinema when it was released is because, honestly... My feeling was, ah, oh, this is yet another, you know, return to the glorious old days. This is just yet another, oh, remember when the 90s were fantastic, lads. This is just yet another trip down memory lane. I was really kind of sick of those kind of things, you know. I was sick of that kind of intellectual product and, you know, the strangling of the new for the sake of the old. What I didn't realise is, really, it's the opposite of that. Really, it's a questioning of nostalgia. And it's an examination of the ways in which nostalgia is ruinous. Yeah? So, as we talk about the politics of Britain, I'd like to start by going over the background to Trainspotting 2. And what its commentary kind of tells us a little bit about the moment in which we find ourselves. So Trainspotting 2 opens in Amsterdam, in a gym, where Renton is running on a treadmill. And the opening establishing shot is, is very, very interesting, because there's a prominent mirror features in it, and it pans around the room to him, and he's running on a treadmill until suddenly he has a heart attack. And this heart attack basically encourages him to go home to Scotland and to, to re-examine his past. And as the film unfolds, you discover there's other reasons he's gone back. Uh, he's in a marriage, he can't have children, and that's caused a marriage to fall apart after 15 years. And he's got nothing, he doesn't know who he is or where he's going, and so he goes back to Scotland, back to Edinburgh, to try and make sense of it all. He goes back to his family home, discovers his mother's dead, um, you know, and they, they have some conversation, him and his father, and then he starts hooking up with all his old mates from back in the day. And here's where you, you can easily mistake the events of the film for being just a, oh, let's relive the highlight of our youth. But that's not what the film is. Instead, each of the characters, each of the four main characters, and there's a fifth important one I'll introduce later, they represent, if you will, a different take on your past. 
they each invoke a different response to living under the weight of your own past. So just for, for clarification, the four characters are Ewan McGregor playing Mark Rent Renton, aka Rent Boy, um, Ewan Bremner uh, playing, you know, uh, Daniel Murphy, aka Spud, Johnny, Johnny Lee Miller playing Simon Williamson, otherwise known as Sick Boy, and Robert Carlyle playing Francis Begbie, otherwise known as Franco. So, a little bit of establishing background to these characters and what role they played in the original Train Spotting. So, all of them apart from Begbie, Franco, were essentially heroin addicts, right? They were all really hard into it. They were addicted to tuning out the pain of modern society and the ennui that comes with it. Interestingly, Franco, Begbie, that guy wasn't addicted to heroin, but he was addicted to violence and violent impulses. And it's very clearly portrayed in the film. He's a bad dude, and the film ends with the police catching him and him being locked up. He goes to prison for years um, for armed assault and potentially murder as well, right? And so when we come into Trainspotting 2, he's in prison with no prospect of getting out. Meanwhile, Sick Boy, um, you know, he's he's a heroin addict and he's the one who gets ambitions to not just be an addict, but to become a dealer, a pusher, get involved in other things. He reinvents himself as a bit of a pimp and he's the one who sets up the deal where they get the 16 grand, essentially, because he manages to come into the, the bricks of heroin and then he manages to find a buyer and he ropes his mates into doing it, essentially. Cut forward to Trainspotting 2 and he's kind of continued on the same you know, uh, path. The opening of him is blackmailing the head teacher of a private school in Scotland with a sex tape that he's recorded using a girl who works for him, showing that head teacher getting, you know, pegged, essentially. It's quite funny. Um, and it's also horrific. But he's not he's not moved on. He essentially is running the pub that used to belong to his aunt. It's a it's a really like it's in terrible decline. Uh it you know, it's in an area where stuff's getting knocked down it's it's not great, and then he's making all these moves on the side as a, as a dealer, and he's got a tremendous coke habit. He's no longer on heroin, but he's doing powers of coke, snorting an awful lot of ideology. Then there's Spud Murphy. Spud is essentially in the first film he was harmless, right? Spud never hurt anyone is a line in the first film, and it's why when Rent Boy Renton goes off with the money. He leaves a quarter of it to Spud. He leaves Spud his share because he's like, Spud never hurt anyone. He's not like the other two who are like dangerously violent and otherwise just kind of, you know, criminally inclined. Um, and so we learn about you know, what has Spud, who's just this pathetic heroin junkie, as he's portrayed in the first film, what has he done in intervening years? And the answer is he's just kind of fucked up at life because he's a bit of a failure. He got clean. He got a job um, working on a building site. And then he got fired for that job on a building site because he fucked up and didn't understand daylight savings. And it was weeks before he understood daylight savings, and by then it was too late. He'd missed all his appointments by one hour. Uh, pretty funny. Pretty funny. And as someone with ADHD, I sympathise a little bit. But he's, he's like, he's the joke. He's the clown in the first film, and he comes into the second one. He's still a clown. He, he For a little while, he got, 
he had a a wife, he had a his son, but he's estranged from him. They think he's a joke. They think he's pathetic. They've got no time for him, and he's back on the drugs. He's he's back doing the gear. He is a heroin addict again, and he's holding it together a little bit, but not really. He's just this sad old man who's been doing heroin for years and years and years, and. You know, he, he briefly had a moment where he pulled his shit together, but then he, he lost it, it fell apart, because he, he just fucked it. He's that kind of guy. So this is the, the kind of opening, the setup, if you will. Rent Boy, of course, made it away to Amsterdam. He ran away from his life, but, you know, now he's had a heart attack, his marriage is falling apart, and he's got nothing, so he's coming back, essentially. And in the way that drama can sometimes do where it's fine, it's like, okay, this is for the sake of setting up the story, we'll, we'll let this go. They have a few events happen in sequence. Um, first event is Franco Begbie, he decides he's going to break out of prison. And uh, he does, he successfully escapes prison. And so he's, he's out on the prowl. Second, when he comes back, the first person that Renton looks up is Spud. Rentboy goes to visit Spud finds him in his shitty apartment, and he arrives just as Spud is committing suicide. Spud has, you know, taken a bunch of drugs and lay down on the floor with a plastic bag taped over his head. Renton arrives just in time to see it and saves his life. And Spud is not happy about it. But Rent Boy, you know, he managed to escape being on heroin, and so he decides he's going to do his best to try and get Spud off it too, because, you know, see if that Spud's going to die. And so in the days he's there, he... He takes him for a run. They go back up off the seat and actually properly run to the top of it. And he just, he tells him, they have a, a really interesting and, and vivid kind of dialogue where he tells him that you're an addict and you'll always be addicted. But the thing is, you need to find something else to channel that addictive impulse into, right? Which is actually genuinely good advice if you've got a, a habit you're looking to kick. Substitution for something that's non-destructive is like one of the ways you do it the other ways are you need like community support family friendship and non-judgmental kind of attitude um but i'll leave that for addiction specialists if you've got a problem seek help there is hope so he, he kind of goes through this with him and it's very interesting because these are the brightest sh scenes of the entire film it's actually technicolor it's like the vividness is cranked up compared to the rest of it gorgeous film visually by the way i highly recommend it and so off the back of this we now come into a what do the characters end up doing in the film and what are these relationships with nostalgia and with the past that they each hold? So I'm just going to lay it there, right? And you can, you know, watch the films and kind of keep these in mind. Um, Spud plays the role of a man who is crushed by the past and he can't take it. And from accepting that he's crushed by it, essentially, he then is forced to, forced to actually critically engage with it and find a way out. And we'll talk more about what Spod does in a minute, because he's the only one at the end of the film who has a hopeful ending, essentially. Though they all have endings that are at least upbeat in their own way. Meanwhile, um, we have Sick Boy, the guy who, you know, became a pimp and is a blackmailer, etc. He's a guy who hasn't been crushed by the past, but he hasn't escaped it. And he's just playing it out. He's he's not changed. He's exactly the same person he was when we left him in train spotting. He's just been following the same course. He's a man who is his own past. And he's just continually making the same moves over and over again and expecting different results. But it never pans out. He, he doesn't actually get anywhere different because he never stops to look at his past and, and examine it and decide, is this who I want to be? You know, instead, when he looks at the past, he looks at it with, you know, very warm, rosy eyes. Then we've got Begbie. 
Franco. And, uh, you know, he's hyper-violent. And his kind of thing is... He's a guy who's obsessed with his past and just wants to get back into it. He's a guy who's been in suspension for 20 years, locked up. And he just wants to get back out there, get back to the life he had. His past, his life he should have had, it was stolen from him. And he's full of anger and hatred about it. And he wants to murder Renton. Because if Rent Boy hadn't stole the money, then the, he would have never went on a violent rampage. The police would have never shown up and found him and he'd have never gone to jail. Plus, with that money, he could have lived this beautiful other life. And so this is a man obsessed about his own past and getting back to it. He's obsessed with the life he never had. He is essentially haunted. He's, you know, lost in the throes of hauntology, right? And then finally, there's, there's Rent Boy Renton himself. He's a guy who ran away from his past, denied it, pretended it didn't exist. But the past has now caught up with him and he's due a reckoning. And so... He goes back to his homeland and he meets up with people. He starts with Spud and he sees Spud is hurting and he tries to give him the only help he knows how to do, which is to tell him, listen, you need something else to distract you, something else that you can funnel the addiction into. And uh, that's not the whole story of what you need to get over addiction, but it's the only story that Rent Boy knows. Then he goes to meet a sick boy, and they fight, and sick boy is not happy with him. And sick boy, essentially sick boy decides, right, I'm going to go along with him for a while, but first chance I get, I'm going to screw him right back, because he fucked me over. Except it's not quite so neat, because as they, they reconcile a bit, um, sick boy and him start to fall back in old habits, because, you know, rent boy, having ran away from his past, and now forced to come back to it, he doesn't know where to go, so he falls back into old patterns, and so... You know, part of the film is him and Sick Boy going out and pulling, you know, pulling schemes, making moves, trying to get ahead, trying to lay on a con. You know, they even go back on heroin at one point, though that's very short lived because they're not the same people they were before. And yeah, and then finally, ultimately, when he meets with Franco, we get the crescendo of the film because um, Franco wants to murder him. Franco wants to murder Rent Boy. And, uh, you know, that's what really pushes things into their crisis, into their head. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So, what's the plot of the film? There's one important character I've not mentioned, essentially, which is um, Veronica Kovac, um, who, she's played by, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, and apologize if I'm not, um, Angela Nedjalkova. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, she's fantastic, and she's a very important character. And it's set up beautifully in the film. When when Renton comes back to Edinburgh and he's going through Edinburgh Airport, there are women standing outside saying, welcome to Edinburgh, dressed in tartan skirts, etc. And the one who says it to him and hands him a flyer has a foreign accent. And he comes back and goes, excuse me, where are you from? And she goes, oh, Bulgaria. And he's like, oh, okay, modern Scotland, right? It's part of the EU, etc., etc. So, Veronica is the sex worker um, that's working for Sick Boy, and she's the one who appears in the videos uh, that he's using for blackmail. And she's his sort of girlfriend, though she sees herself more as his business partner. And his schemes that he's engaged in is he wants to set up a sauna, which for those of you who don't know, saunas in Scotland, like the, the, the low rent saunas are basically brothels, right? And it's all very mobbed up. He just, he's going to set up a sauna and make her the madame of it. That's like the plot, that's the idea. And, you know, this is the scheme that three of them, that is Renton, Sick Boy, and Veronica get engaged in. But Veronica's very interesting. She's, first of all, younger than the others. And she's foreign. She's, she's from, I believe, Bulgaria as well. 
Um, and in the course of the film, when Renton and Sick Boy get together, there's this whole beautiful scene where they're like telling her about the past and reliving their youth and glory days and clearly just engaging in unlike untrammeled, undiluted nostalgia, real deep and vivid. And she clearly just like, all right, you old farts, um, actually addresses them in Bulgarian and basically says, you know, you two are not interested in me. You basically want to fuck each other. You want to fuck your own past. Um, and just calls out nostalgia. She says in Bulgarian, in my country, the past is something to forget, to move on from, to build something new on top of, but you just can't seem to escape it. She's literally speaking a foreign language to them that they can't understand. That is metaphor for anyone who's, you know, curious. Because even if she said it in English, they wouldn't have understood it. It would have still been a foreign language because these are men who are entirely defined by their past and thus wrapped up in nostalgia for it. So, um... She ends up having a relationship with Renton as well, um, mainly because she kind of feels a little sorry for him. Like, there's a bit where he, he takes her out for a drink and she asks him, so what does choose life mean? And he's like, well, what choose life? She's like, yeah. And he goes, well, it's, it's something we used to say back in the day. Why? And she says, well, it's just sick boy says it all the time. He'll just murmur it to himself. And he's like, ah, oh, well, there was this well-meaning campaign. And so he, in straight like nostalgia, he starts doing the choose life choose a new car like he starts doing that but as he keeps going something very wonderful happens something which is the central thesis of the film because as he gets through it it then takes on a dark turn and he starts talking about choosing the life he's in now choose being in your 40s and having no idea who you are anymore choose and he really kind of lets loose this despair this existential angst that he was trying to escape you know because what that scene is showing is he can't go back. When he was young, he could say choose life and be like, you know, sneering about it. And for a moment, he starts to relive that. But the present catches him. And he can't escape the present by going into the past. And his admission of this to her impresses her. And that's when she decides she likes him and she starts hooking up with him. Partly feeling sorry for him, partly impressed that, well, here's a guy who at least is aware that his past is, you know, with him, unlike Sick Boy. But also, to give this character her full depth, she probably also does it because she sees herself as a businesswoman and she her relationship with these two men, she's playing off of it to try and develop a future for herself. She's the most interesting character because she's the most... She's the single character that isn't defined by nostalgia for her past, right? So... And so this is this is the kind of you know core five parts of the film: running from the past and failing to escape it, being consumed by the past and the you know you, you, the past you never had and wanting to get into it, wanting to go back there, never really escaping the past and just never moving on and just muddling through with an unexamined life and being crushed by the past. Where they end up in the film is is pretty great. Um, essentially. Spud, he tries a few different things. There's a hilarious montage where he tries to take up boxing to get away from the drugs. Uh, he gets absolutely like fucked by it because he's not a boxer. And then in a kind of bit of despair, he starts kind of writing down his memoirs of back in the day. And so kind of this is a little nice. I like this. I really enjoy this. Um, Spud is writing the original story, the book, the novel, Train Spotting, 
and it's just a narration of his own past um, in his own words. And he's got a, he's got a way of speaking. He's good with language. He's good with writing. He's even good with forging signatures. He says when he back in the day, he actually did quite well for himself after events of train spotting by like forging checks. But then everything went digital, and you know that skill wasn't any use anymore. Um, so he starts writing down his memoirs, and what he's doing in this is he's the only one who's actually looking in the past and engaging with it and trying to make sense of it and trying to recontextualize it and work out what it means. He's not trying to retreat to the past. He's trying to contextualize the past and how it informs on his present. And he's the only one with a hopeful ending because by the end of the film, he goes back to his estranged you know, partner. He gives her the, the draft he's written and um, she reads through it. And then at the end, she says to him, as he looks, he looks like moved and surprised and like he, he just thought she'd dismiss it. She says, I thought of a title, which is everything she needs to say um, for him to know that, you know, he suddenly she sees him as something different. And this is actually worthwhile. He's not wasting his time. He does have a talent. He does have a worth. He does have something to bring to life. And it's contrasted, by the way, the same scene contrasts it with Renton and Sick Boy talking about how the problem is no one will ever read it. And as we know as an audience, train spotting was immensely successful. So we know that we know that Spud is going to be okay. We know that the book he's written is going to sell really well and he's going to be all right. He's 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 made it out by examining his past. He's able to use it to build something new, right? Meanwhile, the others, well, there are like, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. Because Begbie does catch up with Spud, he reads some of his memoirs, and he reads one particular page, which reminds him of his father, and there's a scene where he essentially realises that the reason he's such an angry man, the reason he had no hope, was because his old man was, like, terrible to him. And so, during his escape, he's been visiting with his family, trying to get his son to take up a life of crime, his son doesn't want it. The last scene he has with his family is he goes back to him and says, listen... I'm going to go away again, and we're probably not going to see each other. Because he's planning on killing Renton, and he figures after it, he's going to get caught. Um, but I just want you to know, good luck. You're going to be a better man than either of us. My dad was terrible. And so there is a bit of redemption in that. A realisation, if you will. When he finally confronts his past, Begbie realises that, you know, his past wasn't all that great. That actually, the life he lives is because his life wasn't all that great. But he doesn't reflect on it any further, just enough to realise he needs to change his relationship with his family, but not enough to change his relationship with himself. And so the final climax of the film is uh, Begbie tries to essentially murder Renton. Um, Franco Begbie comes to murder Renton and punish Sick Boy as well, because Sick Boy knew that Renton was back and kind of hid him from um, Sick, uh, hid him from Franco. Um, Spud's also there. Spud, in a moment of character growth, rather than running away, he comes to warn them. And, uh, you know, the scene that plays out is quite interesting. Because they've been constructing a sauna, a brothel, there is a room made of mirrors that's like a little, it's like a, a freestanding plywood kind of room with a mirrored inside that's half finished. And in hiding from Begbie, Renton goes into a room of mirrors that's just mirrors all around him. And whilst he's standing in that room, Begbie comes up and like tries to force the door. And then they have a conversation where they basically do remember when. And it cuts to like child versions of these actors in the same position as they reminisce about their past because they were childhood friends. And then Begbie breaks into the room as Renton climbs out of it through the ceiling. 
and thus the final like confrontation kind of begins. And there, there's the metaphor. Renton spent his entire time in this mirror box. He's trapped in this mirror box that he couldn't run away from. And eventually he moves on by climbing out of this mirror, this reflection, this looking back at the past. Whereas Begbie, Begbie's just been trying the whole time to get back into the past, to get into the mirror box, and he breaks into it, right? And the, the, the climax of the film is Spud surprises everyone. Spud, who never hurt anybody, and that's repeated twice in the film, he knocks Begbie out by swinging a toilet at him. <laughs> it's a funny film. It's a good film. I highly recommend it. And so the end of the film, um, they put him in the trunk of the car and leave him outside, you know, Edinburgh prison. Um, he's going back to prison. That's his ending. Um, you know, Spud and Sick Boy end up back at the flat because, excuse me, not Spud, excuse me, Renton and Sick Boy end up back at their flat with no idea what to do because Veronica, with Spud's help, has stolen all the money that they've been doing during their wheels and deals and has gone back to Bulgaria to build something new with it. And in the final scenes, you discover she has a child waiting for her back in Bulgaria, and that's why she didn't want to go home empty-handed, essentially. So she she steals from him in an echo of the original film, but hers is not... She's not running away like Renton was. She's going home. She's going back to build something. She's the anti-Renton, if you will, of this film series. Uh, and Spud I've already spoke about, you know. Um, he gets his hopeful ending. So this is, this is a, like a little meditation on the different views of the past, you know. You can be crushed by it. You can be consumed with a sense of loss and regret. Um, you can be caught up in it and going nowhere as a consequence, just playing out the same moves unexamined. Or you can try and run away from it and ultimately fail. All of these are views of the past, and all of these are about nostalgia. There's one other part of the film which is hysterically funny if you're Scottish, and I highly recommend. Um, there's a sequence of a film where... You know, Rent Boy and Sick Boy, they go and basically steal from an orange lodge, which if you don't know, in Scotland, um, there is a, a cultural movement um, that is essentially, it, it's, it's, it's based on the old conflict between Protestants and Catholics, and it goes back to the Battle of the Boyne. Um, and essentially there's a, there's a group of Protestants in Scotland who join what's known as the Orange Lodge, who are all very anti-Catholic, and build their whole identity on this past glory, this past battle that was won where William of Orange beat the Catholics and claimed the throne as a consequence. And so they're all caught up in this, and they're all very anti-Catholic, but it's all very... It's all very nostalgic, and that's how the film explicitly portrays it. And um, I'm not I'm not having a go to to anyone like genuinely you know heritage and culture are complicated things but in the framing of the film this is shown as a living example if you will of rose tinted glasses and how it blinds you to the present and uh, <laughs> Rent Boy and Sick Boy in a wonderful scene basically pretend to be members of the Orange Lodge and use it to steal the credit cards from them on like a party night it's uh, it's very very good. Um, go watch it. Uh, you can find it on YouTube if nothing else. It works even independent of the rest of the film. But what's really clever about it is as the narrative over the top of Rent Boy is explaining what the Orange Lodge is, etc., much better than I have, um, it shows you their initial, like, the party that they're coming into, and they're all singing nostalgic songs, westerns and various other things, which are explicitly nostalgic. And it's it's a commentary. It's showing that here, here's one of the manifestations of nostalgia. You know, a nostalgia of 
loss and you know the the decline of glory days and wanting to go back to them and just blinding you to the present and making you vulnerable as a case may be so so this is the kind of overall narrative I've just taken a lot of time to go through it. It's a good film, as you can hear, I enjoyed it. But I, this isn't a regular episode of Praxis Cast. This isn't a cultural committee. Because what I'd like to do is kind of talk a little bit now about the politics of nostalgia in Britain and how I believe these two films really quite clearly encapsulate them, not just on the, the personal level, but on the political. Let's talk about nostalgic Britain. Britain is a nation that's consumed by nostalgia. The United Kingdom lives on its glory days, on its past. And what I think tripped me up, what really grabbed me about that quote from that video game I gave you back at the start, is that in Britain, nostalgia is just universally a good thing. It's not explicitly described as a good thing, it's just like oxygen, it's, it's just there. The past is glorious, is Britain. It's implicit in everything, in all of our media, in all of our culture. And not just the far past, the recent past too, because there are so many people, so many, you know, um, Gen Xers, pre-millennials, kind of, who essentially, they're caught up on the mystique and allure of Cool Britannia. They love Trainspotting. They really love that film. It's, it's like part of them. The narrative, the story, the, the the coolness of it, the politics of it. It's it's just them. It's cool Britannia, and that's what put me off seeing Trainspotting too. Like I said, um, I didn't I didn't want yet another cultural product. But this film is a criticism of all of that. Trainspotting too. It's actually introducing this idea that maybe the nostalgia isn't great, and that's the thing. They do have a ruinous nostalgia, a nostalgia that consumes you is foreign to the British psyche. Because Britain has never really had a reckoning with its past. In mainstream British culture, cultural products like Train Spotting, the original, are held up as this kind of recent, the, the last hurrah. Remember when things are good? Remember the good old days? Remember Thatcher and Tony Blair? Explicitly in the film, there's that background to it, you know? What does Renboy do? He goes down to London. You know, that's where he starts to find the closest thing to happiness, etc. There's that mystique, that allure. That's the height. But those days are long past. We now live in a Britain that's rapidly declining. At time of recording, you know, we're facing cost of living crises, which are really, I think, unprecedented when you put it all together. And we are in these crises because of revanchist kind of nostalgic, hey, can't we return to our heyday? Can't we return to the glory days of British Empire? Both the uh, political right of the UK and the, the predominant political centre-left, like the Labour Party, Conservatives and Labour, they're both dominated by different forms of nostalgia. It's just a question of which nostalgia is it that they personally hold. Is it a nostalgia for the 60s and before? Is it a nostalgia for the days of empire? Or is it a nostalgia for the 90s? Is it a nostalgia for as late as 2012? Is it that kind of period of time? Is it that golden decade, if you will, between 2002 and 2012? Or is it even more golden decade of 1992 to 2002? 
Or is it going further back to the Thatcher years? Or is it going further back still? Britain is a backward nation, by which I mean Britain is just constantly looking backward. It's consumed by a nostalgia. And that's everything about our culture today, and it's everything about our politics. And really, when you when you look at what we see in the modern-day Britain at time of recording, we have a Labour Party that's trying to relive Blair. We have a Conservative Party that's trying to relive either Thatcher or a kind of revanchist rule Britannia empire. That's our politics. And we have a media class which is all trying to relive, like, you know, train spotting, Or 2012. Like, in that golden era. They're all hung up on that. And everything else they do is, is lashing out against it. And this is why, when the new creeps in, this is why, when we, you know, challenge them with new developments, new trends, new changes, they lash out. I think at least some of the turfery, the anti-trans agenda, which I spoke about in a previous episode, I think at least some of that is just a rejection of the new for the sake of rejecting the new, for trying to enforce the past, for trying to uphold this old world, this old hierarchy. And bear in mind, you know, the reason I talked about the reasons that train spotting were well received, and I explained that Scottish cringe, um, you know, cringing about Scotland being small and poor and stupid. I think that's one of the reasons Trainspotting was successful, and I think that's one of the reasons that is looked back on with glory. There was a hierarchy back then of Scotland as this parochial kind of place, and Scotland's been trying to outgrow that, but there's a lot of people who just don't want that to happen because they like the old hierarchies. They like it because that's how it used to be, right? Right? And in this way, Britain is consumed by a ruinous nostalgia. A ruinous nostalgia. But as I talked about Mad Men, what I'd like to suggest to you is that this isn't just some organic thing. On a personal level, yes, nostalgia can be organic. I have wrestled with nostalgia. Um, and others, I'm sure, you know, as those of you who are younger, I'm sure as you get older, you'll start to wrestle with it and have to go through the same process. It's natural, it's human. But in many ways, the attitude you take to nostalgia is informed by media and informed by culture. And what I'd like to put to you is that nostalgia is a political tool, is a political weapon that has been wielded by our culture and media. And initially it was wielded as a means of manufacturing consent, but I think what's essentially happened in Britain today is the people pushing the drug of nostalgia have become users as well. They've become high on their own supply. And that leads you into a very dark place. I think Trainspotting, the series, is the perfect vehicle to talk about nostalgia because nostalgia is a form of addiction. It's a warm balm. It's an escape. It lets you forget the trials and travails of the modern day, of your present situation. Nostalgia is the heroine of British society. Nostalgia is the opiate of the British masses. And it was pushed intentionally. For a while, they talked about Cool Britannia, they talked about a return to the 80s, they talked about these things. But I think you run into a problem when, as the generations change, as new people come in and drink deeply of that poisonous well, they then start to repeat it organically. Even when you look at the whole never forget poppy 
phenomena, War Christmas, as we jokingly call it on the podcast. This began with the best of intentions. Never forget, look back, recontextualize, remember, build a future while remembering this past and taking lessons from it, right? But it's become nostalgic. It's become, oh, remember when the trips were hard? Remember when Britain was glorious? Remember when there was this great moment of national sacrifice? Remember when? Nostalgia. It's for nostalgia. If it was just recontextualizing, if it was just examining it and going, yeah, that was a terrible time, and we must never forget the lessons of that time, and, we, you know, when we go forward, we have to ask ourselves, are we moving closer to a war or further away from it? That would be one thing. But it's not. Instead, it's remember when it was glorious? And that's precisely dangerous because it means that we're eager for war. And I can't help but think, at time of recording, the crisis was playing out in Ukraine with a Russian invasion, and Britain's complicity in those ongoing, you know, battles and conflicts, I can't help but think they're related to our nostalgic attitude as a nation for war, for the old glories of the past. It's been in the news that Britain was directly involved in scuppering peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. And the people who did this, you know, trust Boris Johnson, um, I can't help but think that a large part of why they did it is because they were appealing to a base which is high on this supply of nostalgia. Nostalgia. A painful itch. A place you can never go back to. An old wound in your heart that will never heal, but that is a source of comfort. And the thing about wounds is they become poisoned, they become septic. You can either look back at your past and try and heal it, try and mend and knit the wound by making sense of it, by using it to inform where you're going. Or you can return to the wound and wallow in it, let it fester. Because it might be a wound, but it's familiar, right? The addiction of nostalgia, I put it to you, is the politics of our day. It's what's really lying beneath a lot of what we're grappling with. And there's no real easy out from it. That's the pain, because like any addict, you can't just force them to go clean, to go cold, because then they're confronted with the ugly truth of where they are. And maybe, you know, maybe circumstances will force them to go clean. Maybe they'll run out of their product. Or maybe the British state will collapse because it can't be what it used to be anymore. Because it can't pretend that its glory days are going to be here again any day now. Maybe that'll happen. But more than likely, the political establishment and the populace that's largely following with them, they'll just want their supply from some other source. They'll kick and they'll push. They'll want to go back to when the binmans were hard, you know? They'll want to go back to when the British Empire was great, actually. They'll want this over and over again, because without that, without that glory... What are they? What is Britain if it is not great? And this isn't unique to Britain. You know, I don't want to, I really don't want to suggest that the disease, the poison, the addiction of nostalgia is a uniquely British thing. I think Britain has it in spades. I think it's very pronounced here, but let's be real, you see it in other places. 
Stranger Things, that TV show, is American nostalgia, you know? And the Biden presidency, some of, you know, him coming in was playing off nostalgia for Barack Obama. Nostalgia is a weapon, is a tool that gets used, and, you know, cultures become obsessed with it. A large part of the kind of, you know, kickback, if you will, that we see in society um, in the form of a right wing and fascism is essentially anger and you know bitterness over a lost past or a lost imagined future things could have been great but then the north won the civil war you know it's a global phenomenon because fundamentally it's a very human phenomenon it's it's at the heart of us and it is sold to us we are sold nostalgia as a balm as a, 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 a drug to keep us tranquil as the opiate of our day. The Disney Corporation essentially does nothing but sell us nostalgia these days. And I'm gonna upset some of my uh, my fellow friends on the podcast here. Um, all the Star Wars properties are just one massive trip in nostalgia. They're all going, hey, don't you remember when you first saw Star Wars? Well, here's more Star Wars. Here's updated Star Wars. That's what it is. Instead of producing new stories, new properties, new ideas, we're constantly going back to this endless well with infinite depth. But the problem with infinite depth is you can drown in it. You can be completely out of your depth in it. And this is the, the cultural and political you know, movement of the day, I think. This is why nostalgia is so powerful and why I wanted to talk about it tonight. But it's not all hopeless. I, I don't think there's an easy way out here, but what we can talk about is we can talk about ways we can move away from nostalgia. The right way to look at the past. We can talk about the difference between covers and remixes. Trainspotting opens with a really great song called Lust for Life by Iggy Pop. It's very, very good. You know, you, you will have heard it before. Um, Trainspotting 2 plays with that. There's echoes of that song are played in the background, little parts of it, little refrains throughout whenever they're remembering their, their early days in Edinburgh. And there's one particular key moment. Renton comes back to his family home to visit his father. He goes into his room. His father tells him that his mother, before she died, left the room exactly as he had left it. Nostalgia. Nostalgic for the little boy she lost. And so he goes into this room, and uh, a cute little detail, the wallpaper is all trains in there, really nice. And he, he takes, you know, he finds his old vinyl record player, and he pulls out a record, and he goes to put it on. And he goes to, to play the record, and it's, it's Lost for Life. But it's not the original version. It's uh, it's a remix of it by The Prodigy. Which is, again, very good version. Lust for Life, Prodigy remix. Definitely worth a listen. And it plays the first note and he immediately just stops it. And he looks kind of shaken. And he stops it playing. The final scene of a film, he's in his room. And he starts playing it. That remix. And as it starts playing, he like, takes off his coat... And he stretches, and it cuts back to him from the first film, when he's on heroin, stretching in a very similar way. 
and then he falls back in the past on the floor because he's on heroin. But this time in the present, he just starts dancing. He starts dancing to the music and the camera pulls back and the room becomes impossibly long. And it's like we're vanishing into a tunnel of like train wallpaper with this point of light where he's dancing, a receding point in the distance. And metaphorically, that's suggesting that this moment too will become our past. This moment of recontextualization, this present, this too is a time we're going to have to look back on and we're receding away from it. But what's really interesting to me is this use of the song. We have the original Lust for Life, which is just iconic, and it's, it's, it's this, this whole moment that's become the symbol of a kind of cool Britannia, even though it's originally American, right? Um, there is something there that resonates. When people hear the music, they feel jaunty and upbeat, etc. And it was the, the soundtrack of this guy's youth. But it can't really be reached again. It doesn't have the same weight. At the end of the film, he listens to a remix of that song. And that's what plays the film out. It's the prodigy version of Lust for Life. And so if you watch the two films back to back, which I did last night just to kind of refresh myself, the opening scene of the very first film is Lust for Life, Iggy Pop. The closing scene of the second film is Lust for Life, Prodigy Remix. And here we kind of come to what I like to suggest is an interesting kind of metaphor for what we do with our past. What's the difference between a cover and a remix? Well, a cover is essentially just playing out the old song again, isn't it? It's just, it's a homage, it's doing it again. It's saying, all right, well, I really liked Billie Jean, so let's cover Billie Jean, you know? Whereas a remix is something different. A remix is taking the original and reimagining it, recontextualizing it, making it into something different. You're not replaying the old past yourself you're instead going well here's the past let's build on it let's do something with it and as a metaphor i think that's quite a neat way to describe what we have to do with our politics and with our culture and you might say well isn't that what you know some people are trying to do uh, isn't that what some of these disney tv series are trying to do they're trying to remix star wars and maybe maybe i'm deeply cynical about it though because of who's pushing it I think that actually, more often than not, when you revisit the past, you're just going to be playing out its hits and highlights. You're going to be doing Remember When. And it's interesting, by the way, what I just said there, hits and highlights. Because we talk about having hits of heroin, but we talk about our past as having its own greatest hits. And isn't that what it is? That pain, that rush, that, toison, that, that toxin, that poison, you know? So... In the end, as we kind of look at modern British politics and we look at this undercurrent of nostalgia, the challenge we have here is to tell a new story. Is to tell a new story about our own lives and about our own past and about what it means to us and about who we are, who we are and who we are going to be in light of that past. But also to do the same for our culture, for our politics. And this applies all the time. At present... I know there's a lot of comrades who are lost in the past of Labour. Both the historical Labour movement, but also the, the Corbyn movement, as it existed 2015 to 2019. But that time's gone, man. It's the past, it's over. You can't go back. You can't put the band back together. If you want to try and play a cover, you're never going to recapture it. 
And similarly, on the you know other sides of political spectrum, they're doing the same thing. Like you know, Truss is very explicitly dressing up as Margaret Thatcher. Can't go back, mate. It's done. It's past. It's over. We're not in the same situation. Our challenge is to develop a new politics that is based in where we are now. That's based in truly in the present, but that isn't. And this is key. That isn't running away from our past. That isn't trying to deny our past. And the dangers we face is essentially politically, on the personal level and on the, the national level, we have a choice between being crushed by our past, being consumed by the loss of what should have been and being desperate to return to our past, between playing out our past unconsidered and between trying to run from our past. And this is what British politics is today, is one of those four tendencies. Desperately wanting to return, being angry about the loss, that's the fascism. Being crushed by the past, that's political disengagement. Trying to run away from the past and ultimately being confronted by the fact you can't escape it. Well, that's some flavour of labour these days. And then, you know, ultimately the Conservatives playing out the same old record and, and never getting anywhere with it. And you might say, well, actually, the Tories and Labour, the Conservatives and Labour, you know, that could be, that, either of those could apply either way. And yeah, they are basically increasingly the same party in many ways. It's just that one of them is, da is dominated by a fascist right. And the other one is dominated by people just disengaging entirely. But there is another option. There is another approach to our politics. And it's, it's the approach of Veronica. It's to say, well, it's not about what we've lost. It's not about where we've been it's not about succumbing to it it's about just recognizing where we are and trying to build something new and having something to build toward and i can't pretend i know what that is for you just as i can't pretend to be able to say this is definitely what it should be for the united kingdom but i can point out the flaw we're facing i can point out this nostalgia and if you feel this episode was a little weird and a little strange and it felt a bit too you know self-indulgent and referential that's the point it's nostalgia, mate. I just spent an entire hour and a plus talking to you about things I liked that I enjoyed at the time. I engaged in nostalgia as a vehicle for talking about nostalgia. Both on the individual level, with Mad Men and Dark Souls, on the cultural level, with train spotting, and then finally on the political level. So... None of us were immune from nostalgia. And if you're sitting here and you're younger and you're thinking, well, you know, this is just some sad old farting around. I promise you, I felt exactly the same way. Really genuinely did. I didn't get it. Because it's only when you have that personal connection to feeling the weight of your past and having to grapple with it. It's only when you find yourself in your, in your decline which I'm facing down now as I reach, you know, come towards 40. I've got three years left, but, you know, it's rush, it's rushing up toward me. It's only when you start to be here that you really start to grapple with nostalgia, that you start to ask yourself about your past, and it's only then that it has this emotional cachet. And, you know, make of it what you will. And I don't mean to be patronising, because I know, I know there are young people out there who have lived better than I have. And who have been aware, oh, what I do today is what I'm going to live with tomorrow. And I need to build a version of myself now 
that later on I won't be caught up in and I won't be crushed by and I won't be consumed by regrets of, etc, etc. I know very young people who do that. And my hat's off to you. I, I never could manage it when I was younger. I've only just now really kind of got a handle on it. But as a nation, this is who we are. We're a nation consumed by our lost youths, the could-have-beens, should-have-beens, would-have-beens, and by the political epochs that have gone by and the moments they could have been. So. And just like the toxin of nostalgia, it's really hard to rip away from it. It's really hard to find an end point. It's really hard to say, that's it for Black Thoughts. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to be more frequent with Black Thoughts going forward. These two episodes that I've just done, I really... I put off putting out there for a few different reasons. This one because I just kept procrastinating on watching the films. The previous one, well, you know why. So, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Thank you to Jamie for doing the edit on this episode. And the music, as always, used with permission, is by RJD2. Take care.